for. That is where we'll begin this period of our worship, where we study from the Bible. Acts chapter 4. I want to welcome everyone here this morning. I want to welcome our visitors. Thank you for being here. I want to welcome our members. Thank you for being here. It's good to see everyone this morning. I want to remind, before I get started, the high school and junior high uh, kids, young people, uh, that the devotional that we have every month will be at our home uh, tonight at 5. So be making your plans to be there tonight. Looking forward to, to having you over. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I want to begin by reading here. Acts 4, 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So we've been studying this year the kingdom. And we've been reading about the kingdom as we've gone through Acts and our daily devotionals. Uh, the elders in the first part of our service have been reading scriptures that all have to do with the kingdom. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that's been the consistent theme throughout the year. And we have been studying about the kingdom once a month in our, our sermons. So we talked about how Jesus brought about and started announcing the coming of the kingdom that had long been prophesied back in the Old Testament. And Jesus came saying the kingdom is here. And then after his ascension, people began to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so we have a picture of the wonderful blessings and the great community of kingdom citizens in the book of Acts, like what we just read. You, you saw that. They're all of one heart and one soul. They don't claim their own property as their own. They're just giving to one another because they don't want anyone to be in need. But last month, we introduced the idea that as things seem to be going so well, Satan begins to attack. And so what we talked about last month is how Satan attacked the kingdom through persecution and through the different uh, efforts that the government made to try to stamp out the new formed kingdom and how God stopped that. How while there was some success and sometimes even people died, Ultimately, those efforts came to nothing. They did not stop the kingdom. And so what I want to talk about this morning is a second tactic we see Satan using as he tries to attack the kingdom. We're going to talk this morning about how Satan uses corruption. And what I mean by the word corruption is the idea of hypocrisy or evil motives among the people of God. And that Satan is attacking the kingdom God has established by trying to show that his people are corrupt and trying to corrupt them himself. So what we're talking about then is if persecution is an attack from outside, corruption is an attack from inside, trying to show that the kingdom is not what it once uh, purported to be. And through that, to try to discourage the people who are in the kingdom and then ward off people who might want to join the kingdom. So what I want to do this morning is just look at three examples of how Satan tries to use corruption in the book of Acts, and then we're going to try to draw some conclusions about that for you and me today. What can we say about the prospect that there might be corruption among the people of God, and how do we guard against that? That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Let's start by talking about Ananias and Sapphira here. In Acts chapter 4, we just read this. Look again at verse 34. Acts 4 and verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now that is an extremely significant statement in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them because it harkens back to an Old Testament principle where Moses, talking before the people went into the promised land, said this to them, 
He said, there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. So there won't be any poor because God's going to bless you so richly that everybody will have what they need. And now Luke is telling us that was coming true in the time of the New Testament church. There were no poor among them. There was not a needy person among them. So it sounds like we're finally reaching this ultimate crescendo in the plan of God until we begin to see how that goes south. Now, to begin with, Luke shows us an example of someone who does this and who helps benefit others. In verse 36, he says, Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's a good example. He sells a field and he brings the money to the apostles. And he is a good man. He is an encouraging man. His nickname is son of encouragement. So what he does is he takes something that is something that is his extra, sells it and gives the money to the apostles. Now, that's a great moment. If we just ended at the end of chapter 4, we would all say, wow, what a great lesson. Let's be more like that, and we'll all go home. But there is another example of this kind of giving in Acts chapter 5. Let's read it, beginning in verse 1. Acts 5 and verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So it appears that Ananias and Sapphira see what Barnabas has done. And they are so impressed by it that they say, we want to do something like that. Particularly, this is just my read of it, it sounds to me like Barnabas probably got a lot of credit and praise and honor for what he had done. And so they say, well, we want some of that. There is no other motive I can come come up with to explain why they do it in the particular way they do. But what happens with Ananias and Sapphira is that they sell a piece of their property and they want to give the money to the church to lay it at the apostles' feet. The problem Ananias and Sapphira have is not, and I want to say this clearly because sometimes it's a misconception that attends to this story, it is not that they just didn't give it all to the church. In fact, Peter says specifically, it was your money, it was at your disposal, you can do with it what you want. You could keep it if you wanted, you could spend it and buy something else. There is no threat here from not giving all your money. The problem is that they want the appearance that they've given all their money while holding back part of it, so they lie about how much they actually sold it for. And I want you to see, when they bring this and they do this, look at what Peter says in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? He sees Ananias act as Satan's activity. It is an attack of Satan. Satan is trying to infiltrate the church. 
And he says in verse 4, in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You could have done whatever you wanted with the money, but instead you chose to lie and not to lie to man, but to God. And so Peter says, I mean, that's all Peter says according to the text. The text then just says that Ananias fell down and died. It does not say that Peter cursed Ananias or that Peter killed Ananias or that Peter called down the wrath of God on Ananias. In fact, some have suggested it could just be some kind of shock. I find that a little hard to believe, but it could be some kind of shock or a heart attack or something like that. Ananias just fell down dead. If that's the case, I find it hard to believe that Sapphira is going to have the same kind of shock in just a minute. But the idea is there is some kind of divine interruption of this conversation, and Ananias dies. Now, Sapphira comes in. She doesn't know what's happened, and Peter gives her an opportunity in verse 9. I'm sorry, I want verse 8. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much, and she said yes for so much. I think he's giving her a chance to, to come clean. And instead, she goes in with the lie along with her husband. And he says, verse 9, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? You see what's happening. Satan's attacking, and the spirit is at test. Is God's spirit really among them? And so she also dies. And Peter simply says, the feet of those who who, uh, buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out. Now, that is a sad and disturbing story. We have all made mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes have been grievous errors. And yet the fact that we are all here this morning means that none of us have suffered what Ananias and Sapphira suffered because of their sin. I do not believe that this is simply a story to say God gave them no chance to repent or anything like that. That that is going to be between Ananias and Sapphira and God. What I do know is that this had an impact because it says this in verse Six, I'm sorry, verse 5 and in verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Satan has made an effort to try to corrupt a good thing. The idea of people sharing and giving even special things, even their nest eggs, even their extra. And Satan has tried to corrupt it and God has stopped it. God has responded to it. And Ananias and Sapphira are a warning from the beginning all the way to today that corruption is known by God and will be judged by God. And it is very interesting to me that the response to that is not, whoa, I don't know if I want to be a Christian, because sometimes they get struck dead. No, the response is instead that the church continues to thrive and grow. It's just that it thrives and grows in an attitude of awe and respect for God. This is a God that he is definitely real and we definitely need to be sure we worship him in reverent fear. So all of these events underscore the reality of God's presence. Satan attacks the kingdom, but that attack doesn't work. Not in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's look at a second example in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Let's talk a little bit about Simon the sorcerer. So in Acts 8, the church is scattered because of the persecution that Saul began. And they begin to go to different places preaching. And Philip goes down to Samaria. And there is a man there in 
Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, that we read about named Simon. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now Simon, he not only is a sorcerer, but he is also somebody who claims to be from God. He claims to be somebody great, maybe even claims to be God. It's not really clear what exactly he was claiming. The other part of this is that the people loved him. And they all had tremendous respect for him because he had such a long track record of deceiving them. So he has tremendous influence and these outlandish claims. And yet when he hears the gospel, he believes it and is baptized. It seems particularly, if you look at verse 13, seeing great signs and miracles performed, he was amazed. I think he knows the real thing when he sees it. He sees Philip, and he says, whoa, that's what I've been trying to do all these years. And so he follows Philip around, probably trying to figure out exactly how he's doing what he's doing. Verse 14 now. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands, lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So the Jerusalem church sends Peter and John down. They pray for them because there is some sense in which they've not yet received the Spirit. And Simon observes that when they lay hands on the people, the people begin to have the Holy Spirit. And he says... Oh, I want that. So he wants this. I'm not sure exactly what his motives are. I suspect, this is just Jacob, I suspect he might see the money-making capability there would be in saying that if I could lay my hands on someone and they receive the Spirit, then I could charge for that from now on. Who wouldn't want that? And so he offers them money. He says, give me this power also. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, Peter is strong here. You notice that? He says, your money, may your money perish with you. May your money go to hell with you. You thought you could purchase God's gift with money? I don't want your money, Simon. Instead, verse 21, you have no part in this because your heart is not right before God. I want you to notice how much Peter talks about the heart. In verse 22, again he says, Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Satan has got you back, Simon. There are strong words, particularly to a new Christian, but Simon is seriously wrong. 
This is an attack. He says, you are living in bitterness. You are a slave to sin again. And Simon, to his credit, is chastened. And he says in verse 24, please pray to the Lord for me that none of these things you've spoken may come upon me. This condemnation, this idea of being cast out from the people of God, and the idea of the prospect that maybe I won't even be forgiven. So here is a new Christian. He has accepted the things of Jesus. He has believed. He has been baptized. But he wants something from his new faith. He wants to use that new faith to make himself some money and some prestige. That is corruption. And corruption, I think you can see from the text, is a heart problem. It is not just that he did something wrong, but what he did revealed something about what he was thinking and feeling and wanting. And so that's why he says, you're, you're in the bounds of iniquity. That's why he says your heart is not right in the sight of God. He knows that because of what he has requested. In the same way that we know that about Ananias and Sapphira. Because what they had done, the lying was not the problem the idea that they thought God wouldn't know and the idea that they wanted the praise of men and the idea that they loved the money so much they would lie about it, that shows the heart that is deeply corrupt. Satan is attacking the church and he's attacking it through corruption. But what you see in this story is that Peter stands up to it and he says, no, we're not having that. And he corrects Simon and Simon receives the instruction so that the story ends... Presumably with Simon being restored to fellowship with God. The problem is solved. The third example I want us to look at is the example of coming troubles in Ephesus. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Acts 20. So what happens in Acts 20 is that Paul knows that he will never see these men again. These men that he helped to convert who are working in a church that he helped to build. And so he calls together the elders of the church at Ephesus for one last little talk. And I want to read with you in verse 28, Acts 20 and verse 28. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you, everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he wants these elders to pay careful attention to the flock, to the local church. That is their charge. They oversee the Christians in Ephesus. And there is a reason for the careful attention. Verse 28 describes the careful attention, but verse 29 describes the reason. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He knows, probably because of some kind of prophecy given to him by the Holy Spirit, he knows that after he leaves, somebody's going to come in and try to tear up the church. So there is an outside threat that the elders are to be aware of. You need to be watching because something is coming. But it's not just from outside because verse 30 talks about a threat from inside. Look at verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. It's not clear if he is saying from among the eldership itself 
or just from among the Ephesian group itself. But he is saying Christians are going to be the problem. Corrupt Christians who begin to draw disciples to them instead of to Jesus. Who begin to try to make a name for themselves instead of connecting people with Jesus. And the way they're going to do that, he says, is through their teachings, through speaking twisted things or perverse things. And they're not going to spare the flock. They're not going to be kind to the flock. So what does he say? He says, elders, you need to be watching. You need to be careful for the outside threats and for the inside threats. And he says in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The idea of commending here is I leave this in your hands. I transfer the responsibility to you. I commend you to God and to his word. That's what's going to help you in these crises that are coming. There are troubles coming in Ephesus. So Paul is warning about future corruption. And he says elders are to use the word and to use their alertness to try to stop the corruption. So those are three examples. Those are from the book of Acts. I would just remind you, even though we're not going to talk about them this morning in depth, that there are numerous examples throughout the New Testament from the very beginning of the church, of corruption in the church, of evil. Remember, Jesus is crucified because he is betrayed by one of the twelve. Remember Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence in 3 John. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who had his father's wife, some kind of sexual relationship with his stepmother. Remember those Paul calls false brethren in Galatians 2. Remember those John says in 1 John 2, they went out from among us because they were not of us. Remember those Paul talks about, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Hymenaeus and Philetus, those who needed to learn not to blaspheme, or those who were teaching that the resurrection had already passed. Or Alexander the coppersmith, who he says simply, did me much harm. The false teachers that Peter describes in 2 Peter 2. People who are Christians in name, but don't live like Christians and cause untold damage to the body of Christ. Well, what do we do with this? What do we think about corruption? I want to remind you that what we see in these examples and in the others in the New Testament is that corruption usually has to do with motives. And the thing about motives is they don't always show up. I don't always know why you do what you do. And you don't always know why I do what I do. In fact, sometimes I don't even know why I do what I do. Motives don't always show up. So sometimes something can look innocent and not be. And sometimes something can look bad and not be. And so we are warned repeatedly about judging according to appearances. But giving? I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, if we're sitting there watching them bring their money in, we're applauding like everyone else, aren't we? Simon the sorcerer, his passion and interest in following Philip around and watching the apostles and being mystified by what the Spirit was doing, this all looks good to us until he offers them money. And even those in Ephesus, they're drawing away disciples after themselves. It seems like maybe they're just really influential teachers. Maybe they just really do a good job. They've got good ideas. It's hard for us to see when there is a motive that is corrupt. But I want you to see 
that the goal of corruption, the goal Satan has, is to try to take good things and poison them. There are good things. Like, let's share our stuff and take care of each other. Well, now he's going to poison that. So that whenever somebody gives, well, what are you really after? I don't know. Maybe they're just going to take advantage of it. I don't know if they really deserve what I'm going to give them. And suddenly, what was a good thing in Acts 4 becomes a corrupt thing in Acts 5. Poison, the blessing of new Christians receiving the Spirit. What once was innocent and pure and good now is, well, i got to watch him. I don't know what he's going to do if we give him this gift. Poison, the local church relationship and the relationship between the shepherd and his flock so that what was good now becomes corrupt. And what happens with that is it doesn't just dull the effect of the good. It's not just that. It goes further because then other people who see it now are discouraged because of it. You know that. You've seen that. Isn't it hard to believe televangelists? Isn't it? And you know why? Because so many of them have been exposed to charlatans. And and when you see that once or twice, suddenly you begin to say, you know what? This is just, this just looks bad. Sometimes there are whole fields of foreign evangelism, whole countries, whole areas of the world that because of one or two fakers, hoaxes, suddenly we just say, you know what? We're not going to send any of our money to the Philippines. You know what happens when you send money over there. You just can't trust that. You see what happens? It's not just that, that we say, well, that was bad. We then say, well, going forward, I'm not sure we should even do anything like that. That's the impact of corruption. I am convinced that there is a whole generation, primarily in America, but I believe probably throughout the world, a whole generation of people who will be turned off from Christianity because of the corruption of the Catholic priesthood and the awful things that have come out about the Catholic priesthood and the cover-ups of the Catholic church. People who say, whoa, if that's what's going to happen when I go to church, no thank you. If that's what it is to follow Jesus, no thank you. That's what corruption does. It just poisons the whole thing. But I want you to hear me. The message of Acts is that corruption cannot stop the kingdom of God. You've got these examples. There are others. But you know what? We come out of the New Testament era. There is still a church. There is still a kingdom. It's still strong. There's still people pressing into it. The gospel is still being preached. Souls are still being saved. God is still being glorified. Everything is the same. It's just this was an attack of Satan that can do some damage. And we have to be prepared to understand that Satan's going to attack in similar ways today as he did then. And I believe that's part of the reason why we have the record we do so that we can know what Satan's going to do and how we have to fight it. All of that, I believe, is intended to give us hope despite the possibility of corruption. So I want to spend the rest of our time answering the question, how do we overcome corruption? I want you to know that just in the examples that I've already used, corruption can have a tremendous destructive and discouraging impact on people. 
And it may be you that as you sit here this morning, you're thinking about situations like that where you've been turned off from trying to serve Jesus because of things you've seen or heard. And I want us to ask the question, what do we do about that? And how can we think about that biblically? And the first thing I want to say is that we need to look at ourselves first. Before we start talking about corruption and other people and hypocrisy that we've observed, we would do well to look first in the mirror. If others can become corrupt, what makes me think I can? Jesus teaches us this. Well, that's not the passage I want. Don't even pay any attention to that. That didn't happen. Jesus teaches us this in Matthew 7 and verse 3, which I thought I'd put on the board. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Why? You see the speck in your brother, but you don't notice the log in your own. We don't look at ourselves first. And, and this is understandable because other people's flaws are, seem like a really big deal to us. And when we see corruption in situations like the ones we've described, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that's understandable. But Jesus says, first, you need to clean out your own eye. First, you need to examine yourself. I have no right to talk about and complain about and be concerned about corruption in other people until I have first examined whether I am guilty. I have no right to do it. Because immediately... With the finger I point at someone else, there are four pointing right back at me. Three. The idea is we have to look at ourselves and understand we might be part of the problem instead of part of the solution. Second, uh, assume the best, but don't be naive. The New Testament has this unique blend of positivity and realism. I don't know if you've noticed it. That Christians choose to be positive and to think positively. But it's not because we're naive and we don't know about the world. It's that knowing what we know, we still choose to be positive. And Jesus articulates that this way, the passage you didn't see earlier. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise and innocent. Wise and innocent means we need to be prepared for the reality of evil in the world and yet preserve ourselves from it. So both, wise and innocent. So when I look at my brethren, I need to assume that they're sincere and things are above board and that bad appearances are merely appearances. I need to be innocent in that sense. And yet, I can't be naive. I still need to be discerning. I need to see problems. I need to be aware that Satan is at work. I need to take the experiences I've had and say, you know, I saw this happen this time. That could be happening here. I need to be wise as a serpent. Both of those are still true. That I can not assume my brother has a problem, but also not be blind to the evidence that he has a problem. That I can do both. And I believe that our calling is to assume the best, but not be naive. That is true of everyone, but most particularly true of my brethren. The third thing I want to say about how we overcome corruption is we need to say something. Do you notice that all the examples that we have had a corrective rebuke? Peter was the one who rebukes Ananias and Sapphira. Peter was the one who rebukes Simon. And Paul is the one who rebukes prospectively about what's going to happen in Ephesus. You guys need to pay attention and remember that I warned you with tears night and day for three years 
about what was going to happen. So when we see something amiss, say something. I understand those are hard conversations. I have been involved in them. I know. But what we're saying is, saying something now can prevent a world of heartache later. Think about Simon. Think about Simon the sorcerer. If Peter had not said that to him then and challenged that heart, what's going to happen to him? It's not like that's just going to go away. It's going to grow and get worse and worse. It is only by that kind of rebuke and challenge that we can get corrected and get back to where we need to be. I know those conversations are awkward. I recommend when we have those conversations that we don't presume we're Peter and say things like, I see that you're poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Maybe a little much. But I would recommend when you have those conversations, asking questions about how are you doing, where are you, Express concern in a way that you would say, I'm concerned about this or about that. To show humility. I've thought about myself. I've worked on this myself. I'm concerned because I see in you something I've seen in myself, maybe. But whatever it is, I don't want my brother or sister to just walk down the path of corruption and me say, well, I guess that's just what happens sometimes. Say something. Don't put faith in people. People are not perfect, and they are unworthy of our ultimate faith. Now, what I mean when I say that, I don't mean don't believe anybody. I don't mean that. And I don't mean don't believe in anybody. What I mean is my faith has to be ultimately in something besides you because the truth is people are going to let us down. They're going to make mistakes. And even if they don't, they have before. So... I want you to remember what Paul said when he talks about this. You know, if you've read 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is a letter where Paul has tremendous disappointments. And he writes about a lot of them at the end of his life. He is in prison and people have forgotten about him and left him alone. He says, all those who are in Asia turned away from me. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Demas has forsaken me. All these people. He's got a long list of people who did him wrong. But do you know what he says? He says, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul never let his faith get in the people. Now they're going to disappoint him. That's going to be frustrating. That's going to be hard. It's going to be emotional. But nothing about his relationship with Jesus had changed. And he says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm not ashamed of that connection. That's why his faith lasts. So don't put faith in people. Because people can be corrupt, people can fall, and we don't ever want our faith linked to them to then dissolve because we put it in the wrong person. And the last thing I want to say about this is refocus on the blessings of the gospel. Corruption is one of the great distraction tactics of Satan. You see, if I'm looking at my brother and thinking about his missteps, if I'm watching TV to try to see if that TV preacher is a charlatan, then I'm not really focused on what God has said and what God has done for me. I'm not really looking at Jesus. I'm not really setting my mind on things above. And it is essential that we remind ourselves that no matter what everybody else has done, the gospel is still true. Nothing about what they do changes it. We talked this morning about the Pharisees and how he said, 
do what they say, but don't do what they do. Well, because what they say can still be true, even if what they do is not right. Nothing someone else does changes the blessings of the gospel. The life change that I've experienced because of what Jesus has done, the hope that I have of eternal life with him, the fact that I have perspective on my sufferings, and I know that they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits me. Refocus on the blessings of the gospel. I want to say something at this point. Um, I think very personally about this topic. I know what it is to be disillusioned by other people's corruption. I was exposed to that kind of thing at a very young age, and I really wrestled through it, uh, with it through my uh, teenage years. I was convinced at one point that everybody was a faker. I don't know if all teenagers go through that, but, but I certainly did. And particularly those at church. I saw the flaws, and, and then at that stage in my life, I didn't see any good. Something changed in me, though. And it wasn't that somebody did something or said something that snapped me out of that. It was that I discovered my need for Jesus. I I suddenly saw the beam in my eye. And that changed me. Because I saw that what I thought was corruption in other people was also in me. And it changed the way I started looking at others. You see, I saw they were flawed just like I was. They were struggling. Sometimes they made huge mistakes, but they were not fakers. In fact, most Christians, and I can say this having preached for about 15 years now, most Christians, almost all of them, are sincerely trying to do right. And it's important that I know that and that I remember that. Instead of becoming consumed by that doubt and skepticism about people. But I know that some people aren't. And I just want to leave you with two thoughts about that. The first one is, don't let that be you. If you're faking, if you're not really interested in living right, if you're not really sincerely believing in Jesus... If you're enslaved to some sin and you're hiding it from everybody, you don't have to live that way. That's not a part of the gospel. And that tension that you feel is coming from within you. You can let that burden go. Be open about what you've done and come back to the Lord. Two, don't let anybody get between you and Jesus. Don't allow it. You know, that's what hypocrisy does. We say, I, I, can't, I can't serve Jesus because there are hypocrites in the church. And I say, you've allowed hypocrites to get between you and Jesus. Don't do it. Nobody else deserves that, that place of honor, that I would allow them to take me away from the Lord. I have decided that knowing Jesus is worth dealing with people who sometimes are insincere. I have decided that being positive and optimistic about people is worth sometimes getting burned. I have decided that the blessing of seeing Jesus is worth the hardship we go through now. My question to you is, what will you decide about that? Where will you stand? 
The kingdom will not be stopped. God's will will be accomplished. The question is, am I serving in that kingdom? Am I a part of it? Am I serving the Lord with all my heart? There might be someone here this morning who, having listened to this and thinking through this, decides they need to obey the gospel, to become a disciple of Jesus, to be saved from their sins. We'd love nothing more than to help you do that by baptizing you into Christ this morning. If there is any need you have to let this congregation know about something that you're struggling with and need help with, or if there's anything we can do for you, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.